0: Well, good morning. We are thankful that you are here this morning, especially to anyone that may be visiting with us. You're an honored guest. We're thankful that you've come our way and we appreciate the chance to get to meet you and know you after services, some that are not exactly guests. We're thankful the Richardsons are with us this morning and wish them a safe travel as they made a quick turnaround and be headed back out here just a little while this afternoon. But we are thankful for whatever reason that you are here this morning, that you have chosen to be here and that we can stay together for just a few moments. Uh, a couple of notes. I want to say something, but then you need to hear what I say afterwards. The first thing I'm going to say is that the new baby is here this morning. All right. But the thing I'm going to say after is not everybody can hold him at the same time. All right. Don't touch his hands. Don't touch, you know, all those things with a new baby. So there's still a lot of sickness around. So, but we are thankful. Uh, it's amazing. Uh Mia's made a quick turnaround. We're thankful they're with us this morning, and we uh, appreciate so much the good news there, and we continue to pray for Hudson as well and hope that there will be a day soon when we can have both of them here with us, and, but we're thankful that they made it this morning. Uh, I would just give you one more uh, an encouragement as well to try to be back with us this evening, certainly for our worship hour 6 o'clock as we assemble together, but even for our fellowship afterwards, we're thankful for our graduates. Uh, We will have a table honoring our college graduates. We were a little late getting them the information about the dinner and all, so Rebecca and Hannah won't be here tonight, but we'll have a table set up for them, and we appreciate their good work and want to congratulate them as well. Uh, But we want to congratulate uh, Hannah and Bradley, and uh, we're thankful for the chance to do that this evening. Uh, we will have an activity that goes along with that to try to encourage them, and uh, uh, it's usually a little fun, something we've done in the past, at other graduation things we were a part of. And so we hope that you'll plan to stay, back, uh, stay with us this evening after our services. If you have your Bible this morning, you can be turning to Luke chapter 10. <clears throat> Luke chapter 10. In November of 2006, in the far away from us, the far away land of Nanjing, China, there were city buses that were going about their daily commute, they were picking people up and dropping people off and moving people around the city, and this particular bus pulled up to a stop to let people off, and a 65-year-old grandmother, a 65-year-old grandmother got off the bus and fell and was injured. And it was determined later that she actually broke her femur, which is very painful, I'm sure, if anyone has broken a leg. But there was a person who assisted her. There was a person who got off the bus right behind her, and he was a 26-year-old student by the name of Peng Yu. Now, Mr. Payne made sure that she was all right. He assisted her, actually made sure that she got to a nearby hospital and even gave her something around the equivalent of 25 U.S. dollars to help her with any expenses that might come because of her fall and her injury. And this lady, this 65-year-old grandmother, repaid him by suing him. She claimed that he might have been at fault in her fall. And in the end, the courts actually ruled in her favor And Mr. Peng was forced to pay some $7,000 to help out with her medical expenses and other damages that were incurred. You fast forward about five years later to October 2011, specifically October 13th, 2011. And a little two-year-old girl by the name of Wang Yu was with her family in a Foshan street market. And she actually wandered away from her parents and she wandered into the street And she was tragically struck by a white van that was passing by. The van actually struck her and then stopped and then continued on running her over for a second time. And as she lay there in the streets, there was actually another white van that ran over her legs what would be for a third time. And this incident was captured on closed-circuit camera television there. And in the end, it was determined that 18 people... Eighteen people passed by. Eighteen people passed by this little girl without stopping. Eighteen people passed by this little girl as she lay there in the road. They didn't offer any assistance at all. And it was the 19th person, actually, a lady who was scavenging for garbage in order to sell on her own, who finally stopped and helped this little girl and got her moved to the side of the road and got her some help. And she was taken to a local hospital where she stayed for eight days until October 21st, 2011, where she fought for those eight days, but then succumbed to her injuries and died there in the local hospital. And as you can imagine, after this incident, there was a lot of outrage in China. A lot of people were really upset. In fact, somewhat unfortunately, you can still find on the Internet the video from the closed-circuit television cameras of this incident, and you can watch as 18 people pass by. There was a lot of outrage in China, but people were aware of the Peng Yu incident from five years earlier, and several people who were interviewed afterwards and in subsequent interviews noted that they were aware of that, and they were aware of the possibility of being sued for helping someone and being forced to pay for something that was not their fault, and that made them unlikely to help someone else, even a little two-year-old girl, because of the fear of retribution. Finally, a couple of years later, in in 2013, in the area of Shenzhen, China, there was a law that was enacted and was passed to help cover people who might be in that situation. People who offer aid to someone who might be hurt on the side of the road, but they were afraid that they might be sued. Those laws are even international laws, and they vary sometimes from country to country, and sometimes they even vary from state to state. But they do share one thing in common, and that is the name that they go by, the Good Samaritan laws. In fact, I think they are in all 50 states as I understand it, and most every major country in the world now has something that they would call the Good Samaritan laws. Now, if you've got your Bible and you turn to Luke chapter 10, you recognize this story. It's one of the most well-known parables in all of the Bible. The only one that might rank above it is uh, the parable of the prodigal son, or the lost son in Luke chapter 15. But but we're going to stay in Luke chapter 10 this morning because that's, that's, there's really nowhere else to go as we want to break down this particular parable from the master storyteller or the master teacher. And what we'd like to do is take a look at this entire passage as quickly as we can here and then, of course, make some application to ourselves. First of all, this morning, let's talk about... The scene. Now, in the scene, I mean the passage that we're talking about here in Luke chapter 10. Notice, first of all, the time. Now, if you've got your Bible there, go back to verse number 51 of Luke chapter 9. The Bible says, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him, that's Jesus, to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face. To go to Jerusalem. The time that we find this parable told is in is not Jesus is preparing himself for his death. Notice there in verse 51, it says that he had set his face. He was preparing himself for his death. Now, continuing on into chapter 10, you would notice maybe a familiar passage at the beginning of chapter 10 in that the 70 are sent out. But it doesn't exactly have a whole lot to do. But in the passage, even in verse number 17, the 70 have actually even come back in at this point. And we come down to verse number 25 and we meet in this scene the lawyer. Now, if you're filling out your outline, I've got several parts of this scene. We weren't able to get them all into the outline, but here we meet, first of all, a certain lawyer. Now, this would have not been a civil lawyer as we think of it in our day and time. When we think about this person being a lawyer, he would be what we would call more likely a scribe. Someone who was an expert in the law, but in copying the law. He should be an expert in it. He's got to continually scribe and write that down and copy it over time and time again. I kind of like to think of him as a civil lawyer, though, because of the exchange that takes place here, like we see on our television shows and in courtrooms today. But he was not that type of lawyer exactly. He would have been more along the lines of a scribe. And in verse number 25, he gives Jesus the test. Again, maybe this is not the best way to describe it, but we're going to use the words this morning. He gives him the test. In verse number 25, it says he said to him, or excuse me, the teacher tested him saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what's interesting here, depending on the version you may be looking at is, you may see the words that this lawyer made trial. Now, again, that's kind of interesting for us is the way that we think about a lawyer interacting today. But the lawyer made trial of him. And what we begin to do here is we begin to form this idea in our mind of this lawyer, this snooty lawyer, this smart aleck lawyer that's there to test Jesus. And maybe there's a little bit of truth there. But notice what's interesting in verse number 25, the test, the question is actually the right question. We give him a hard time, and we'll talk about that more in just a moment. But we give him a hard time, but he actually asked the right thing. What are they they going to ask later in the book of Acts? What's the question that we tell people to ask today? What shall I do to be saved? The question he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, is the right question. The right test that he gives him here. And so we come to verse number 26, and Jesus gives him what I'll call the redirect. Now, I also call this putting the mother test to him, right? Because mothers aren't always going to just give you the simple answer. They're going to answer the question with another question, right? To kind of redirect and challenge that young person, that child, to make sure they know what they're talking about. And so Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? And what is your reading of it? So notice again, not just to redirect, but sort of shoving it back at him. Jesus says, hey, you're an expert in the law. What is your reading of it? You tell me what the law has to say about it. What is written? Again, a very interesting question when we think about how we answer everything in life. What is written? And so in verse number 27, we get the reply from this particular lawyer. So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. So, interesting enough, what does he quote from? He quotes from Deuteronomy. He quotes from Leviticus. He tells him exactly what the law has to say. And in fact, the lawyer here does the right thing. He describes the relationships. We describe them as the vertical relationship, our relationship with God, but also the horizontal, our relationship with mankind. And the lawyer here says that it's about the vertical as well as the horizontal. But what Jesus gets to as he answers in verse number 28, he says to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. Now, an interesting note here, and we sometimes talk about the Greek or the language, but if you go back to verse number 25, you won't see it in your Bible, but as the lawyer asks him, what shall I do? The... Verb form that's used there is what we call the aorist tense in Greek, and it means a one-time thing. So what the lawyer is wanting to say is, hey, what do I have to do this one time in order to inherit eternal life? It's kind of like that Jesus could have said, go outside and dig a ditch. Go outside and dig a six-foot hole, and that's all you got to do. One time, that's all you got to do. That's what the lawyer essentially asks. But Jesus says to him in verse number 28, do this, and that's the present tense. Now, you may recall that we've talked about this before, specifically in 1 John chapter 1. And what's the idea there? That if you walk in the light. And we said that we have to keep on walking. It's not a one-time thing. Keep on walking. Jesus says, do this as in keep on doing it. Not just one time. I mean, he could have said that. He could have said, go outside, dig a ditch. He could have said, be baptized one time and that's it. But keep on doing this. And you will live. And in verse number 29, where the, do- the lawyer gets the, the, bad, uh, the bad name, the bad reputation, we get the real reason why he's asking the question. But he, that's the lawyer, wanting to justify himself. If you were in our class this morning here in the auditorium, we talked about that. We talked about how good we are at justifying ourselves. We talked about Micah from Judges chapter 17, where Micah... He creates his own church, if you will, just a bad use of the word. But he creates his own little place there, his own little shrine. He makes his own idols. He makes his own priests. And in the end, a Levite comes around. And he makes the Levite his priest. And he says, I've got a Levite. See, I must be good. Well, wait a minute. That's kind of bad reasoning there. But we do the same thing. We kind of get to the end and we say, well, God would have wanted me to do this. And so he justifies himself. And sometimes we're good at that. We justify ourselves and notice his question in verse number 29, almost that spitting back in Jesus' face, okay then, who is my neighbor? All right, if you think you've got it all figured out, who is my neighbor? And with that, we come from the scene of this to the actual story. If you've got your Bibles open there, let's read 30 through 35 very quickly as we remind ourselves about this. Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Verse 32. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. In verse 35, on the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So you know this story, again, maybe the most famous one outside of the prodigal son, but let's talk about it again very quickly. First of all, we meet the man. Now, the man would be this certain person, this certain man who would have been a Hebrew or a Jew by description here. And he's traveling, by the way, what's known as the bloody way. In fact, I found this information. It says the scene of this story is set along that rugged and dangerous road that connected Jerusalem to Jericho. The distance is some 17 miles. And the descent from the Mount of Olives to the priestly community of Jericho was about 4,000 feet. Now what we're talking about is two or 3,000 above sea level down to 1,000 feet below sea level. And under ideal conditions, notice... It would have taken someone maybe six hours to traverse that distance between the city and maybe longer if they stopped. In fact, the, the noted author, and you may know the name very well, J.W. McGarvey and some of his companions traveled to this area. And on horseback in 1879, they traveled this particular road. And he noted that along with a precipitous trail, there were several areas where robbers might hide, assault unwary victims, and make a ready escape. You see, Jesus, the master storyteller, the master teacher, knew this. The audience is going to understand that road just as much as we know Highway 111 over the mountain. They understand this. They know this particular bloody way, called that, of course, because of all the people who were robbed and beaten along the way. And so we come to the bandits. Now, that's what I call them, thieves, robbers, depending on the version that you're looking at. They're out for gain, their own gain, at the expense of somebody else. And again, we'll come back there in just a moment. Then we meet the priest. Notice that he passed by now, it's interesting to make the the uh, connection to 111 because I, this is not a road that was probably as wide as 111. Now, I don't know that it was as narrow as maybe a set of pews here, but but it wasn't as wide probably as that because I I don't think it just would have been that wide because it would have made the traveling a little differently. So I picture this priest passing by on the other side, but it wasn't like he had to holler or could barely see this person on the other side of the road. He might have walked by very close to him, and he chooses to go on. I think about the words in Matthew 25 where we talk about the passage that says, and Jesus talks about those who would do things unto him, or the least of these, and those who would choose to do not things unto him, or the least of these, and the priest passes by. We meet next, of course, the Levite. Now, again, we said this in our class this morning, but all priests had to be Levites, but not all Levites were priests. So some Levites were simply assistants, which is an interesting thought here, by the way, because this Levite is a pretty good assistant. Because what does he do? The same thing that the priest does. He assists him in a great way by just simply passing by. Again, not so far that you've got to strain your eyes to see, but maybe just very, very close, chooses to ignore this man And walk by. And of course, then we meet the Samaritan. Notice in your Bible, if you're still turned there, that he was a certain Samaritan. What is he not called yet? He's not called a good Samaritan just yet, at least. Because Samaritans were known as what? They were known as mongrels, they were known as half breeds. In fact, the rabbis have always kind of had a saying that said, May I never set eyes on a Samaritan. Sounds like a pretty bad way to speak of someone, but that's the way they were treated, these Samaritans. They were half-breeds. And in fact, in John chapter 8 and verse number 48, those who were trying to accuse Jesus of things accuse him of being a Samaritan. I don't think that's a pat on the back. I think that's more of a a slap in the face. Somebody that you wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. I've told you many times, my father-in-law, if he's talking about somebody like that, he says they're just from Bledsoe County. I've learned over here, you say they're from Soddy or Daisy. I've learned that already in just a year or so, right? But, But these are the people that you would not even come close to talking to, much less stopping and helping. But this certain Samaritan does just that. And then in this story, I think it's interesting for a moment that we point out the innkeeper. We don't oftentimes talk about this particular innkeeper, but do these guys know each other? I mean, there's some connection or, or some kind of conversation here that maybe they did, but here's the other thing I'd like for you to consider. Is it possible maybe that this innkeeper sees the compassion of this Samaritan and acts in the same manner? You ever heard of the idea of passing it on? You ever the idea of one good deed, good deed turns into another good deed? Maybe this innkeeper sees a Samaritan with a Hebrew helping him and he decides to do the same thing. And as we began to think about making application and this impact on our lives, I think that's a pretty interesting way to consider the interaction that takes place here in verse number 35. But now let's think about the significance very quickly in the last few moments that we have together. First of all, I think we have the knockout. If you notice a few moments ago, we stopped at verse number 36 or verse 35, but look at verse 36. Jesus finishes speaking by saying, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the the thieves. I don't know if you're a boxing fan, I'm not exactly, but we understand the idea of a knockout or we call him a haymaker, that big final punch that's going to knock somebody out. And I think in a sense, Jesus is willing to do that here. He's winding up and ready to throw this punch back at this guy by asking him the question after telling this, who is neighbor? Now the question is asked, but what is interesting is I think the answer is already known, right? Don't you think that the lawyer standing there listening to this knows what the answer is? Jesus could have stopped at verse number 35 and gone on. He could have stopped and moved on with his life. There was no reason to ask the question. He'd already put the thought in in this lawyer's mind. But he's going to deliver the knockout and he's going to ask him, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him? And so in verse number 37, we read the answer. In verse 37 says, and he said, that's the lawyer, and he said, he who showed mercy on him. Now, this lawyer would have been a Hebrew or a Jew, kind of like the certain man who had been attacked. And this lawyer would hate this idea. He would hate this idea that the Samaritan is the answer, and the Samaritan is the answer. We know that, and everyone listening knows that, but this Hebrew or Jew, this lawyer, would have hated this idea, so much so that he won't even say the Samaritan. How does he answer him? He who showed mercy on him. It's like that On his lips, you can feel it. He wants to say Samaritan, but he just can't bring himself to do it. I'm not going to say their name, so instead I'll go around and I'll simply say he who showed mercy on him. He can't do it, but Jesus knows he's got him because the answer is known. And so with the significance to this particular passage, we read the charge, the very end of verse number 37, go and do likewise. Now notice again, and it's not going to say it in your Bible, but this go and do is the present tense. Keep on going. Keep on doing. Not at one time. Not go dig a ditch. Not be baptized once. Keep on going and keep on doing. Now that's the end of the story. That's the end of the scene. But let's quickly make a little more application for ourselves. T.B. Laramore uh, wrote many different sermons. He was one of the great restoration preachers that some of you may know that name. And in eighteen, excuse me, nineteen forty nine, B.C. Goodpasture, who was then the editor of the Gospel Advocate, published. Some sermons from T.B. Larimore. And in one of those sermons, it was titled, The Three Philosophies of Life. And no doubt you may have heard these before. The first one is the iron rule. Now, in our particular story, and again, as T.B. Larimore was sharing it in his sermon, this is the robbers. This is uh, those bandits. And, And what we might call them today is the bully. The schoolyard bully, someone who's bullying someone else. The iron rule says, might makes right. You've got it, I want it, and I'm going to take it. Whatever I have to do to get it and make it mine is what I'm going to do. Take from whatever, from others, whatever you please. The silver rule is what the priest and the Levite went by. The silver rule essentially is this. Do no harm to others, but look out primarily for your own interest. The plight of others cannot be of concern. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to take your stuff. But I got too many other things to worry about. I'm just, if I can't help, I can't help. I'm sorry. That's just kind of the way my time goes. The priest and the Levite passing by on the other side go by the silver rule. And of course, you know the golden rule, the good Samaritan here, Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 12, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This was the Samaritan's disposition. So the question this morning is, who is my neighbor? If we know that we're supposed to be neighborly, if we know that we're supposed to be helping, then who is my neighbor? A few passages very quickly. We already talked about Matthew 7 and verse number 12, the golden rule. In Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40, another lawyer asked another question of Jesus, which is the greatest command? And what does Jesus tell him? Love the Lord with all your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. First and second great command, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like with this certain law you're quoted to Jesus there in Luke chapter 10. And then I think about Galatians chapter six and verse number 10 as well, the application from the Apostle Paul to us today. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith doing good unto others treating others the way you would want to be treated stopping and helping when we have an opportunity who is my neighbor that gets a little more difficult to answer sometimes when we think about other people in life who is my neighbor is it any of these people on the screen they're our neighbor they're a little harder to love sometimes a little easier to argue with but they're our neighbor what about these people you may be familiar with the Westboro Baptist Church and the many things that they've done over the years in trying to maybe get out God's message, but doing so with a very hateful tone. There are neighbors. Who is my neighbor? People like this that you see on your image you know, or images on your computer screen, on your television. They're our neighbors. Who is my neighbor? A lot of different people in this world. And the question this morning from this great parable is, how do we treat them? I think it's an interesting thought to think about what this Samaritan did. This Samaritan had demonstrated the qualities of a true neighbor. Maybe not exactly who is my neighbor. We answered that. That's everybody. But how does a true neighbor act? A true neighbor acts in showing compassion on one or on someone who in another setting might have demonstrated rudeness and hatred toward him. I know some of you are getting that down maybe for your outline, but notice what it says. Me showing compassion to someone else who in another situation might show hatred towards me. That's a true neighbor. Not that I might be mean to him one day and nice to him the other day, but that I would be nice and show compassion to him today where in another situation he might be mean towards me or show rudeness or hatred. That, that is a sign of a true neighbor. The story that we started off with, or the stories combined, the court that found in favor of the 65-year-old grandmother and forced Mr. Pang to pay the $7,000, in their ruling, this is what the court said. They said that no one would help in good conscience unless they felt guilty. That was why they made him pay $7,000. There's no way in the world that he would have stopped and helped that woman out of the goodness of his heart. He must have done something. He must have done something so he has to pay. Sounds so counterintuitive. It sounds so wrong to the word of God. If he did, if he paid, he must have done something. No, that's not the attitude of a Christian. Who is my neighbor? In reality, when we think about this story and the way that we should treat others, the bottom line of it is, is that Christianity is a way of living. It doesn't matter if you're a Samaritan or a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're German or American or English. It doesn't matter if you're black or white or anything in between. Christianity is a way of living. That we would stop and help someone on the side of the road, no matter who they are. Because that is the sign of a true neighbor. There's so many good things in this story here. So many things that we can learn. But I think it's very important that we think about that Christianity and being a Christian Acting like the Good Samaritan did is a way of living. That we would do good unto all, especially to those of the household of faith. As we conclude our lesson this morning, we ask for you to think about this particular situation, and especially in light of your life. As we're gathered here this morning, the possibility exists there may be someone who's never become a Christian. You can't go about living the Christian life because you've never become a Christian. We will be singing in a moment to encourage you to think about making that great commitment. Maybe you've done that in times past, but you've wandered away. You've sort of forgotten what it means to be set apart, to be sanctified. You've forgotten what it means to be a Christian. You've sinned, and there's sin in your life that separates you from God. We'll be singing as well to encourage you that maybe you can come back to him. You can repent of your sin, if it was of a public nature especially, and you can pray for forgiveness, and God is willing to do just that. We can all be a neighbor to each other. We can all encourage each other. We can all make Christianity our daily life, the way of living as we go through every step of our journey and with every person that we encounter. Not just because we're guilty, but because we showed love, especially Christ's love. If you're here this morning and you need to respond to the gospel invitation, we'll be singing to encourage you as we stand together and as we sing.